0: From KHOL, this is Jackson Unpacked. Our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm reporter Hannah Mersbach. Coming up on today's show, a listening tour across Wyoming.
1: We want to see good paying jobs. We want to see good growing communities. We want to see good, vibrant, healthy uh,
0: discourse. Plus, Colorado cities compete for the title of tastiest tap water.
2: So does it quench you? Does it taste good to you? You you can judge from maybe a mouthfeel, if it's slippery or is it grainy? So it's kind of like wine tasting.
0: But first, an interview with Carlin Girard, who runs the Teton Conservation District. Funding for the district was on the ballot during this week's election and passed by a wide margin. We talk about the stress of losing funding every four years. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I really I really appreciate you taking the time.
3: Thanks. Happy to be here, Anna.
0: So, you know, Teton County has tons of conservation groups, as we all know. What sets Teton Conservation District apart?
3: Great question. So Teton Conservation District is local government. We have an elected board. Um, we, we fit under the Department of Agriculture at the at the state level. So I think fundamentally um, we're very different than a lot of the conservation organizations in the sense that uh, we're a governmental structure, but we have a ton of flexibility in the scheme of of governments. Currently, the biggest project we just put on the ground was the Mountain Neighbor Handbook. In the last couple days, we just got the final report for a septic system effluent monitoring project. We've been partnering with the Jackson Hole Wildlife Foundation to create levy ramps for wildlife passage inside of the River Corridor. And we've been working a lot with uh, local ag uh, on conservation practices, property owners on uh, native plantings.
0: So to get to the news, in this week's election, about 70% of Teton County voters supported continuing to fund the Teton Conservation District for the next four years. How did it feel to see this pass once again?
3: It's a really big deal to us because the structure we currently have as an organization is really based upon having that mill levy. If we didn't have it, we'd have to uh, certainly change our our granting opportunities, which which are very meaningful throughout the community. Um, And and we'd probably have to also change our staffing structure.
0: And on top of that, I know this year, the question about the conservation district tax was left off, off the ballot, Voters had a separate piece of paper in which they voted for or against it. You know, did that add on to that stress?
3: This year was interesting in that way, and and luckily we caught it really early, so we didn't have to do some sort of separate vote associated with it with the district tax. I think in the end it was just fine. Um, it's a stressful time for for people at the conservation district and for our partners too, and so any deviation is is a little nerve wracking, but. You know, we were are really thankful for the the work that the clerk did to get resolution right away. And in the end, who knows? Maybe it benefited us.
0: Right. And I know that the tax has passed every four years since 1998, sometimes by a pretty big margin like this year, and sometimes by a tighter margin. Do you think this is an effective way to continue to fund the district?
3: So there are different mechanisms to fund the district. Um, we made the choice to use this funding mechanism because it keeps us on our toes another way is you can put forward a ballot proposition that just reads differently and says that the voters will approve up to one mil in perpetuity until there's a referendum vote so that would be um granting access for the conservation district to collect those funds until another vote occurs that would say We weren't allowed to collect the funding.
0: Why put this on the ballot every four years rather than having it that that second option that you mentioned where you are funded until voters say you can't be funded anymore? So
3: conservation districts are this style of government that really is a little different than other types of governments. And we're intended to meet a need and, and adapt that need based on our locally elected board. So part of that concept, I think, of of asking the voters every four years, should this entity be funded, is along that same vein of is this the need and can the community get behind it and support it that this is something we want to continue to do. So it's about meeting a need and asking the voters if that need exists and if we're doing a good enough job that they're willing to support it with their, with their tax dollars.
0: And I know a lot of your focus has been on water issues lately. What will be your focus moving forward in this coming year?
3: Water has been a huge portion of of both our budget and our staff time. And I think we've really done a great job of elevating that and and getting um, the ball rolling where actions are now being taken at a really meaningful level. Some of our new initiatives that we're really ramping up relate to native plantings. We, we really wanna uh, encourage people to um, think about opportunities on their property and perhaps we can begin to outpace the uh, habitat loss from development with the addition of native habitat on, on existing properties through reclamation. Our local food system is another thing that I think is a big focus of ours right now. And, and we've had some really great, I'd say we'd have, we, we've had some really great partnerships and we've seen a lot of growth and interest, and we're really looking forward to continuing to support growing food here locally in a conservation-minded way.
0: Great. Well, we'll keep an eye out for what happens with that. Next up, former K2L reporter Will Walkie, now at Wyoming Public Radio, goes on a listening tour across the state during which he visits everywhere from Casper to Sheridan. He brings us this report from the road.
4: My first stop was Casper, which was uncharacteristically warm and a bit quiet on an October Thursday. Casper is hours from any out-of-state metro area. Justin Farley with the Local Economic Development Alliance says a lot of his job is convincing companies to come to Natrona County.
5: We really have to be self-reliant. That's what we've done, very industrious, extraordinarily talented workforce. Uh, But those cycles, the boom-bust cycles, we just really want to try to find a way to smooth that out a little bit.
4: Farley says Casper can become more of a hub for manufacturing, aerospace, and science. He's also not the only one across the state that sees a need for new ventures. The governor is focusing a lot on trying to attract talented workers here. During my drive through Sheridan, Gillette, and Douglas, many locals said they want the same thing.
1: Our kids that that
5: grow up here and they get educated here, we like to have them back in the workforce and keep our families
0: together and not have them leaving to go find tech jobs somewhere else. I've just seen so many people who had great jobs now don't have it and they don't have the insurance. Douglas is a really good example of our hotels where they're full but they're full of the guys working on the wind farms, coal bed methane workers, oil field workers, they're not your tourists.
4: Heading north on I-25, I stopped for gas in Casey, home of stunning views of the Bighorn Mountains, and on this Thursday, a herd of several hundred sheep rolling through downtown. It's this Wyoming, the charm of Main Street, friendly neighbors, that people still love. Amy Albrecht has lived in Sheridan for 30 years and echoes those feelings.
0: I think the thing that makes me the happiest, other than just looking at the mountains every day, is that I really feel like in this state you can you can make a difference. You can actually make real change because you know your legislator, and if you don't, you could find him or her pretty quickly.
4: Albrecht works for a community nonprofit with Sheridan College. She says she talks to a lot of businesses and members of the public who share her values, and many of them are worried their home is becoming too popular.
0: When you feel like you have something that's special, um, you want to hold on to that. And so what, is that? what does that mean? Does that? You know, You don't get to shut the gate behind you.
4: Property taxes, electric integrity, and green energy all came up during my tour. But perhaps the most divisive issue is the perception that local communities are changing, partially because of people moving in from out of state.
1: When they move here, they don't necessarily leave what they didn't like there.
0: I'm not one that wants to attract a lot of diversity into our state. I think we're our state's
5: conservative, and we enjoy our neighbors, and we enjoy um, doing the things that we do in Wyoming.
2: I struggle with some of the more conservative viewpoints, and people like me, I feel, just don't have much of a voice because there aren't enough of us.
4: Funny enough, many people didn't have much to say about their state government, though several town officials would like more revenue for housing, education, or health programs. A few also had some bad things to say about the federal government, but mostly, people talked about what their neighbors and coworkers care about. The drive from Gillette to Douglas, my final leg of the trip, is quintessential Wyoming. I passed windmills and trains full of coal, oil rigs and cattle ranches, herds of pronghorn, wide open spaces, and very few people. Robert Short, a commissioner in Converse County, was my last interview. He had a lot to say about Wyoming's future.
1: We wanna see good paying jobs, we wanna see good growing communities, we wanna see good, vibrant, healthy uh, discourse, and we want nothing to change. And therein is the rub. The town
4: where Shorts from Glenrock may be getting a next generation nuclear reactor in the next decade, which he's excited about. He also wants to see more electric vehicle charging stations, innovative farming techniques, and other newer industries grow in the state. But most of all, he wants to see more willingness from politicians to try new things.
1: You know, we've had it really good here. Uh, coal, oil, and gas at, at, uranium have paid the way for a long time. We cannot continue to saddle them with more and more of the burden.
4: The political makeup of Wyoming for next year was mostly decided in the primary, but one thing's for sure, people are paying attention to the big questions the state faces in the coming years, no matter who has the power. For Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Will Walkie.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm reporter Hannah Mersbach, and this is our podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop most Fridays on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up next, An interview with Zakir Hussain, a world-renowned Indian musician and Grammy Award winner. He's a master of the tabla, a pair of hand drums used in Hindustani classical music. Hussain performed in Jackson at the Center for the Arts on November 9th and spoke to music director Jack Catlin ahead of the show.
5: So you grew up as the son of a musical genius and began your professional career at a very young age, touring internationally by the age of 18. What was it like growing up in such a musically rich environment? And can you touch on those early performance experiences being so young?
6: In those days, music was not necessarily taught in elementary schools or universities or anything. It was still a handed down process from a teacher to a student to a student in the intimate surroundings of a teacher's home. And so it was uh, very, very special in that sense to be part of that. Now, the reason why that also be, happened more so because when I was a wee bairn well, little kid, maybe one month old or whatever, my father would hold me in his arms and sing rhythms in my ear. So by the time I was three or four years old, there was all this information that was sitting in my ear, in my brain and it popped up in the form of someone else delivering the same information, you know, scattering it out and, in, in, you know, in, rhythmically and then playing it on the drum. And then suddenly that connection would be made and the curiosity door would open and I would rush to want to be, oh, hey, I know this. Can I... Uh, also learn how to move this forward onto an instrument and so on and so forth so that is how i grew up from like a three-year-old to maybe about seven or odd years old and when my father saw that i was really very very interested in it because he would not push me in it that's when he said okay you want to study so let's just get serious about it and so my training actually began around that time and even then, uh, I was not regularly allowed to bang on the instrument. I was more having to be an academic student, learning the process, you know, the repertoire and its source and, and its development and a family tree of sorts of all that was given over the last thousand years to the students because our, our music did not have a documented way of teaching. It was all oral. Yeah, that's that was the way it was. I would wake up with my father at three o'clock in the morning and go through this academic process of the music and then go out to my school and do the school from like eight o'clock in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon, come home and then practice. And I'd put all that information onto the drums and he'd be listening from the side and kind of giving me tips as to how to clean up the process. Mm-hmm. It seems
5: like a very unique situation where your father is your mentor yeah. and he f- probably feels a lot of pressure for you to learn yeah. the instrument and you feel a lot of pressure to learn the instrument from him. So it's kind of yeah. a delicate balance. So
6: The tradition in the old times has been the same, like the son of a cobbler learns mm-hmm. the art from his father or a farming business Mm -hmm. uh, kids it was always passed down 200 years back or 150 years back now it all changes uh, in the modern times but so in my time i would not consider to be the modern time i mean i'm talking about 1950s and we were still you know no computer television was just kind of squeaking its way in, and the distractions were few and uh, therefore the focus was stronger Mm-hmm. and what was there.
5: You've worked extensively with Grateful Deads, Mickey Hart. If you did not know, we have a, a lot of deadheads here in Jackson Hole. Can you tell us what it's a little bit more of what it's like to work with him so intimately? I know you probably can speak complete language of just the two of you on your own without even verbalizing anything.
6: Well, the thing is, working with Mickey, I mean the first thought that came to my mind when we were in the studio, the very first and or second day that I was working with him in Nevada at the bond, the word came to my mind was sacrilege. And the reason why that was because here I, I was this kid who just come from India and uh, very much tied into my tradition. And, you know, it's like the do's and don'ts were neon signs right in front of my mind's head. And uh, these things just are not done. And these things don't even attempt to do it et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there was this guy who was like totally turning me upside down on my head and saying, do this, pick this one up and play. find a way to work on this one. He wouldn't even let me touch my own instrument, my tabla, when I first came. It was more like, I don't know, I guess he had to, he had figured out in his head that he had to get me out of that world to actually allow my mind to open up to the possibilities that it can. And so the first thing that happened to me was, okay, play this drum, no tempos, no click tracks, no backup, nothing, just play. Uh, What should I play? No, just play and that kind of thing. And now play that drum, now play that drum, now play that drum, drums that I had never even seen. I had to sit, hold and figure out what I was gonna do with them at that moment. It was, uh, you know, it's like uh, meeting somebody for the first time who doesn't speak your language and finding a way to be able to communicate with them and finding a way to be able to draw them into a conversation with you and common ground to be discovered together. So breaking out of my comfort zone was something that was such an essential thing as, uh, you know, he knew that I was so plugged in and the umbilical cord had not yet been broken uh, <laughs> with my music that it needed to be severed and, and and for me to be able to think out of the box and that happened and, and to this day I'm gra- grateful to him
5: well thank you so much Zakir for joining me and us here at k2l really appreciate it we're all very excited my pleasure, for the show Dad, you take care for more music news and culture make sure to check out our website 891kl.org. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL Jackson.
0: There's perhaps nothing as refreshing as cold water straight from the tap, but making your water clean and tasty isn't so simple. City water providers from all over the Mountain West put their supplies to the test at a recent event in Colorado, KUNC's Alex Hager was invited to judge the taste test and filed this report.
1: I'll be honest, I don't know a lick about judging water. I'm at best an amateur water enjoyer, but here in the middle of a bustling conference hall at a big hotel in the ski resort town of Keystone, our panel is at a long table as a crowd gathers to watch the tasting, before we take a sip, I thought I'd ask the judge next to me for some of his expert advice.
2: My name is Victor Sam. I'm an engineer at Stantec, which is a consulting firm. Um, I actually did my masters at Colorado State University on um, taste and odor.
1: What are you looking for? Like, what are we? What are we? What are we taking notes on? What are we noticing when we're tasting today?
2: Well, overall, you just want to have a pleasant experience. So, does it quench you? Does it taste good to you? You can judge it from maybe mouthfeel, if it's slippery or is it grainy. So it's kind of like wine tasting.
1: The organizers give us a taste and odor wheel, and it lists all the different notes and flavors you might pick up from a glass of H2O, chlorine and bleach, but it's also got a lot of the same things that people say about wine, fruity, grassy, earthy. But that might not be much help to me and the other judge seated to my left. Colin Chung is on the board of the American Waterworks Association. His group is running the conference and the tap water competition, but like me, Chung is no scientist. They're all looking very, very good to me. Making me thirsty at the moment, actually. What was that you said about wine earlier? I can't tell the difference between a $10 bottle of wine and a $500 bottle wine. They all taste good to me. <laughs> and the tap water in front of us is not wine, but it's being treated with the same ceremony and elegance as a nice Cabernet. The organizers pour water from heavy bottles into stemmed glasses before handing samples from cities large and small to each of the judges, who are grading them on a scale of one to 10. All right, so I've had my first pass of the water here. I think it's time to go through and start getting some numbers down. The first one, not gonna lie, little chemically getting some chlorine notes. So I'm gonna give that one a five. And I do remember some more pleasant tasting waters down the line, so we'll start there. Are you noticing uh, after we've looked at this wheel of flavors and they said maybe you'll taste cork or grass or citrus? Have you picked up on any of that? <laughs> not, not that advanced level here. I don't, I, the sweetness I can't taste. Sour, bitter, maybe the bitter, I don't know. But for someone who does know, let's turn back to our expert, Victor Sam.
2: First thing that stands out is actually a lot of all of them taste very different. And the second one is, even though they're all different, there's two of them that give me the same feeling, just one more intense.
1: I called that one rubbery. Does that sound right to you? I love that word. Yes. Yes. After all, it isn't really an exact science. Just ask one of the other judges, Sushira Pochuraju. She's an environmental engineer who the MC called Dr. Taste and Odor.
2: Taste and odor is really subjective to people. So, like, people have differing opinions, right? Sitting next to each other, me and my partners have different opinions.
1: Pochuraju literally has a PhD in water, taste, and odor, but she says that's not necessary to figure out which water tastes good to you. After plenty of hydration and a little deliberation, the organizers tally up the scores from the panel of seven judges. The champion, Grand Junction, Colorado. After the dust settled, I caught up with Amy Brown, with the Winning City's water department.
2: It feels awesome. Never win anything.
1: (laughs) And why do you think that people love Grand Junction water so much?
5: Because it comes straight from the Grand Mesa, the world's largest flat top mountain. Yeah. So, yeah, gorgeous place. Great water.
1: Next up, all the regional winners take their water to the national championships, where they'll square off against some of the best water in North America to see whose taps are the tastiest. In Keystone, Colorado, I'm Alex Hager.
0: That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is performed by the local band, Strum Bucket. I'm Hannah Mersbach and this is K Jackson